Calling all Swifties and champions of change, Like a Girl Media is rolling out the red carpet for you with our Thrive Like a Girl contest. We're all about celebrating powerful women leaders who inspire us to dream big and push boundaries. And who embodies that spirit more than Taylor Swift herself? Here's your chance to see her live in concert. We're giving away two tickets to Taylor Swift's show in London on Saturday, June 22nd. Imagine being part of the magic, all thanks to Like a Girl Media. Entering is easy. Subscribe, share, and show us which episodes inspired you the most. Visit our website or check our social media for all the details. Don't just dream it, be it. Thrive like a girl and make this summer unforgettable. Contest opens globally. Voidware prohibited. Must be 18 or older to enter. No purchase necessary. Subscribe and share with hashtag thrive like a girl and tag us at like a girl underscore media for entry. Unlimited entries means unlimited chances. Winner chosen at random after contest closes May 20th, 2024. We'll be notified via DM. Make sure your profiles are not private. Check full rules on our site. This is your shot to see Taylor Swift live. Don't miss it. Well, hello there, and welcome to the Hit Like a Girl podcast, where with each episode, we hear from different women experts in the health IT industry. We like to hear about what makes them tick, how they overcome challenges, work they are especially proud of, and much more in the hopes of creating a safe space for sharing experiences, geeking out on health IT industry-specific knowledge, and sometimes just to enjoy each other's uninterrupted company. I'm Joy Rios. I'm Robin Roberts. And this is our fifth episode of the season. Today we'll be speaking with Karen Schanneberger, an experienced quality assurance manager who used to work for one of the country's largest medical facilities, the Oregon Clinic. I don't know about you, but when I see one of CMS's thousand-page proposed or final rules, I'm usually thinking to myself, point me to the cliff notes. Unfortunately, they don't exist, but today Karen is going to walk us through what administrators of ambulatory surgery centers need to know to stay in compliance and much more. All right, so let's jump right in. Karen, when I met you, I think initially you were working for the Oregon Clinic, which was a super big specialty practice in Oregon with hundreds of thousands of patients and hundreds of providers. You know, I know you started in a research lab and, you know, really evolved into kind of some of these quality initiatives and other things. Can you tell us maybe a little bit more about your background and, you know, all of those pieces and and what it entailed? Okay, sure. Yes, I started um, back in Virginia. And as you said, in a research lab just out, just outside of college, um, when I had my first bachelor's in biology, then um, like many people, like many women, I became a stay-at-home mom for a while, then went back to school to follow my passion, which was nursing, and was able to, to get my nursing degree in Virginia, moved to Colorado with my husband's job, and started my nursing career there. So for about three years, I was doing bedside nursing in the hospital setting. And most of my time was spent in the telemetry and cardiac departments. And I became a cardiac nurse educator the last few years I was there. Um, And during that time, I got involved in some unit-specific and hospital-wide quality initiatives, efforts to improve performance on uh, reporting of core measures, and some very uncomfortable moments in an accreditation survey. So when I moved to Portland, I had actually thought of trying out some procedural nursing in the ambulatory setting. And when I started applying, I actually was was approached by a group 
um, that eventually became the Oregon Clinic, to take on a role of quality assurance manager for their endoscopy centers. And because of my background, working with the regulatory compliance, with quality initiatives, and also with just my own personal geek out that I like to do with Excel spreadsheets and computers, um, it just was a great transition. And so that's how I ended up in the Oregon Clinic. I was with uh, one group, Gastroenterology Specialist of Oregon, and uh, several years later, they joined the Oregon Clinic. And eventually, I was able to develop a centralized QA department for all of their GI divisions. So we had four endoscopy centers, four clinics, 50 plus gastroenterologists, and um, was able to you know, create this standardized reporting processes and data collection, went through all of the accreditation surveys from Medicare to HHC, and was really able to take their quality program to the next level. And that's what led me eventually to my next job, which was with where I met you guys at Informed Diagnostics. It sounds like you've been involved in really a lot of facets of healthcare, both on the research side, in different components of nursing for different specialties, that clinical side, education, and then, of course, really it sounds like many of kind of the quality hats that you wore in the GI practice and the ASC for such a super large group. Yes, yes. And that um, I like to be able to take all of that knowledge and put it back together to help other smaller groups understand really how it all ties in together. And I like being able to show them that what they're doing for their patients that can translate into data of some sort that we can use to report back to um, accrediting bodies, to uh, insurance payers when they go to negotiate contracts, when they want to attract new physicians, they can really take the information of, of, of the care that they've done. It's their patients, their work. It's just needing someone to help turn that into a story and turn that into actionable information that can be used. So when I joined the GSO at the time, they really already had a good quality program where they were tracking certain internal measures. They had done some studies on some of the endoscopy quality measures like adenoma detection rate, withdrawal time, sequel innovation rate, but they weren't doing it in a, a continual fashion. So they would do it at each time they got a new doctor in. And so from the endoscopy world, uh, you have a set list of uh, performance measures that are generally accepted as the metrics you everybody needs to be monitoring. And if a endoscopist is not meeting certain minimum requirements, then they, they need to have some sort of action plan to improve their quality. So for GI, it's really easy to, to track that in terms of knowing which measures there are. So I had the list of measures, like, and I'll say, say those again, adenoma detection rate, fecal innovation rate, withdrawal times. Those are three that are very simple that everybody tracks. And then also looking at complication rate. So if this was an orthopedic practice, then the measures would be different. You would still be looking at complication rates, but you would spend more time looking at infections, uh, post-procedural infections. You didn't have those as much as in, in GI, but like you would have those in, in ortho. So regardless of what kind of specialty you're, you're in, most of those specialties have measures to track. 
So that's how really you start setting the goals for which measures you want to track. The ASC quality reporting program from CMS was honestly something that uh, when implemented in 2012 was a bit difficult to manage because it was it was quite confusing. They the measures that they, they applied the measures to all specialties. So there wasn't something specific that we could just pull the information and and provide it over. You know, they they wanted it from the G codes that had to be implemented into everybody's practice. And then they started pulling different measures that we had to do chart abstraction to get the information. And if anybody has worked with QualityNet, I think everybody knows it's, it's been kind of confusing. So we did have to add in those measures to our program, but it wasn't something that really we were able to use to track performance so much. And until after they started really showing us data over time, and I did use that to implement into my quality program, because we could compare the rates on each measure within our own groups as well as to the national averages. I have one particular story I'd like to share with anybody who's worked with QualityNet and CMS can understand. I actually had to uh, appeal a penalty for one of our facilities and actually was able to win. It took me over a year to get an answer from CMS, but it was something that when we started out in 2012, I was fairly new to the, to the program, fairly new to the industry, and didn't know what an MPI number was. Now, we all know what an MPI number is now, and it all makes sense to me now. But at the time, when I was filling out the paperwork, I asked my boss, oh, well, I need the MPI number for the facility. So she gave me one, and only one, but I was representing two facilities. And nowhere in the training, nowhere in the webinars, the slide decks, specification manual, did they ever say, FYI, if you are working with more than one facility, they need to be registered separately. And again, I look back and go, okay, that was that seemed so common sense, but nobody ever said it. I didn't think about it. And the tracking that we did with that particular group was all combined. Everything, all the data collection was done collectively. So I reported everything for both facilities under the one name because they did have the same name, just different MPI numbers. So I reported everything each year. I became an expert at this ASC quality reporting program. I could probably have done the webinars myself. I knew so much about them, but I didn't know that one thing. And as I would get notices once a year saying, this facility doesn't have a security administrator registered, or this facility has not reported this. Well, I would pull up my documentation that showed that, no, that facility name I can show you that I've reported. This went on for a couple of years. And then we finally get the notice from CMS that we're going to be penalized to 2% for failure to participate. But again, I could pull up my documentation and show that everything I was getting from CMS, what was showing on QualityNet, the, the difficulties I had with that, there was enough inconsistency that that's what I was able to use with CMS to appeal. But again, it took over a year because even though I submitted all the documentation, I never heard back. I'd call them in three months, no answer. I'd call three months later and find out, oh, all the appeals are already done and your facility is not listed on it. So I had to go back again. And finally, a year later, I was finally able to get the letter from CMS 
that said they are going to reconsider, they're going to remove the penalty, and that we wouldn't have to do anything to recoup that money, that CMS would, would do all of the refiling of all the claims that were done incorrectly. So I kept waiting to see if that happened. And I would go to our billing coding office and they could never confirm that the refunds had started coming back in. And so another three months would go by and finally we were able to see that it was done. But the the bottom line for a really long story is that I was doing everything I could to comply with the, the challenges. And despite all of that, if I hadn't kept on top of it, kept going back to them, kept all my documentation, kept checking to make sure that they'd follow through, it would never have happened. And I was very educated about the program. I had a lot of support and still I was failing. So if you're a small practice where the nurse manager is the security administrator for Quality Net and they're doing their quality program and they're doing infection prevention and they're trying to staff, how in the world would that group have enough resources and time to do what I did. The good news is CMS seems to be finally listening to the industry when the Ambulatory Surgery Center Association, the state association have been lobbying the government for years to change requirements for the ASC quality reporting program and to change things about the payment system. This past year, the new 2019 proposed rule just came out in the summer and it actually showed that CMS has listened The lobbying efforts have paid off and they've actually included some of the some of the requests that have been on the the shelf for a long time from the industry. They've actually changed the reporting program or they've proposed changes to the reporting program. Similar to MIPS and the reporting program that Robin and I are sort of living and breathing, that gets updated with rules every single year. The same is true for the ASC quality reporting, and they appear to be kind of going back and forth with what it is they're asking from practices and facilities. Can you speak to yes. you know whether or not that is a good thing? Is it are they asking too much? Are they asking too little? What should practice administrators really be on the lookout for? Right. So yeah, this year, and and it's the same as the MIPS program, the proposed rule comes out, they give you several months for the public to make comments on it. CMS will consider the comments and then the final rule comes out at about the end of the year. So this year, the biggest news that I think that the administrators and the physicians and anyone connected to an ASC is and should be so happy about is not the quality reporting program, but the fact that you can have the same procedure, say a knee surgery, at a hospital outpatient department that you can have at an ambulatory surgery center. The same surgeon can perform the procedure. You can have the same anesthesiologist. You could even potentially have the same nursing staff who can go back and forth. But CMS is going to pay the hospital outpatient department facility fee probably about three times what they will pay an ASC to perform the same procedure. So 20 years ago, when ASCs really came about, they were making about 80% of hospital outpatient departments for the same procedure. So if a hospital outpatient department got paid, you know, $100 for a code, ASCs got paid 80. But over time, each of the payment structures had to go through some inflationary factor. So the hospital outpatient department, what we call HOPDs, they would be 
applied a inflationary factor called the hospital market basket. So that takes into account the cost of nursing, supplies, medical supplies, drugs, hospital administration costs. Um, but the ASCs were using the consumer price index as their inflationary factor, which that took into account inflation for bread, cheese, milk, cars, washing machines. So that discrepancy over time meant that each year the ASC payment got less and less and less compared to the hospitals. So the hospitals would go up and the ASCs would go up less than those. So the discrepancy just became increasing to the point that right now ASCs get paid about 50% of what the HOPDs get. So this new rule proposed that for five years from 2019 through 2023, the ASC payment will be using the hospital market basket inflationary factor applied to the ASCs so that they can see how much this is going to help. This is really going to keep some ASCs from closing, literally. Because the inflationary factor and the discrepancy was getting so much bigger each year, there was a point at which some ASCs could no longer could no longer stay independent and would have to join a hospital. So that's really the biggest news because it means money, it means security, it means continuing to survive in the industry. Can I stop you and ask you a question about the whole ASC versus hospital scenario? Just because I'm thinking about bigger pictures, isn't it overall less money like for the system for patients to be seen at an ambulatory surgical center versus going to the hospital? Is there a larger conversation around cost? And how does that, if at all, play into the reimbursement rate? You would think that, you know, they should potentially be on par or Mm -hmm. since they are saving money, maybe even get more reward for that. I don't know. You would think. (laughs) And that's one of the... That's one of the biggest discussions that we would start out with when we went to Capitol Hill to lobby, when I did that with the ASC Association. Going to an ASC versus an HOPD is going to cost the patient less. It's going to cost the payers less. It's going to be faster, easier, because it's much faster to get a procedure done there than at the hospital. You don't have as much waiting around time. You have less chance of infection because you're only around healthy people. There are no sick people around you. The ASCs have shown in years of of research that procedures are safer in the ASC, cost less, are easier to schedule. So yes, the system itself would save money by going to the ASC. And it takes a lot of time and effort and money to get the legislators to overcome that because the hospital lobby is so huge. Hospital lobbying groups collect a thousand percent more than the ASC lobbies. The hospital voice is big and bold, and they like to say that the ASCs cherry pick their patients. They only pick the, the least sick patients. Hospitals, you know, they have all this other overhead because they have to maintain a whole full hospital. And they'll say ASCs don't take people who don't have insurance, whereas Hospitals have to take on charity care, which is not really, not necessarily true. A lot of the ASCs do charity care every year. All the ones I worked with did. So it makes common sense for the ASCs to to be really pushed by payers and the government alike. And it's just taking time to get that to happen. Listening to your two different conversations, that the thing I was thinking of as a benefit also, Karen, in closing that disparate gap in how they were assessing inflation for the hospital versus the ASC, 
in your words, and it's so true, was we're seen with smaller, more independent, autonomous physicians and practices and ASC, you know, surviving, let alone thriving to me. It's about the mm-hmm. patient getting served, right? If they close doors yeah. and then the gap in care for those patients and then ultimately the rising cost on the system as a whole with that, it's great that they're finally recognizing it years later. Yeah. The ultimate cost seems significantly higher for the most important stakeholder in this equation, which is the patient. Right, because once those independent groups do joint ventures with the hospitals, their little facility, which is still technically ambulatory, it's not connected to a hospital, but because it now belongs to the hospital, they can bill it as a hospital. So you may still benefit from the safety of it being in an ASC and the ease and the convenience, but now the patient and the payers and the government are still going to pay more because the HOPD facility payment reimbursement is so much higher, which is unfair. Wow. So. Yeah, that's my soapbox. (laughs) Is somebody assigned a surgery center or can they do their own research on their doctor and choose where they want to go? And if they can do the latter, should they be looking at whether or not that surgery center is owned by a hospital? Right. So because truly it's about who your surgeon is. If you've decided that, oh, I heard that this orthopedic group is really great over here in Portland, you go there and Dr. Smith says, well, you can have the procedure in the hospital at St. Vincent, or you can have it at the ASC across the street. Now, FYI, I happen to be a part owner in that. They have to give that disclosure, but they're going to recommend you to the ASC where this is where I perform procedures. And they may perform procedures at multiple ASCs, which some of them do. And so they would give them the choice of which one of these ASCs do you want to go to. But it's not like I can choose. I want to go to Dr. Smith in Ortho, but I want him to come in and do the procedure at this ASC on the other side of town that I heard is really good. They can't do that. So truly, you can go in the hospital, compare, and pick which hospital you want to go to for something. But the doctors have to have privileges at that hospital. So it really, it's about where the doctor has privileges at the hospitals and the ambulatory surgery centers. That's going to direct where you're going to go. So if you went on to their hospital compare and see the ASC compare information, you know, you're not going to be able to turn that information around and take it back to your doctor and say, that's where I want to go. That does make sense. And actually, people should know there's a physician compare, a hospital compare, an ASC compare websites that basically give you more insight into all their quality information and much, much more. Mm -hmm. And the data that's available on physician compare and hospital compare are easy to use. They make sense. And it's easy to see the ratings. But the ASC data is actually buried in the hospital compare website. And when you pull it up, it doesn't give you the ability to, to compare one facility to the other in the way that the hospital compare and physician compare sites do. It's a, a very confusing thing for patients if they actually could find it or want, knew about it and wanted to see it. What they would see is a spreadsheet, a wide, very long spreadsheet of each facility and how they measured on each of the 12 measures that the ASC program has, but those numbers really are not going to make sense to the layperson. It barely makes sense to most professionals. 
Yeah, I totally agree. I'm familiar with the ASC Compare, and it basically looks like a big Excel spreadsheet that you have to scroll over to the right to see a bunch of numbers that, to a layperson, to your point, it means nothing to. If somebody sees ASC 9 or ASC 10 with a percentage next to it, as a patient, I have no clue what that means. Right. So when administrators and nurses managers and everybody has to deal with this quality reporting program, the frustration is, is great because, you know, CMS is, is setting these requirements on the ASCs and there is no benefit really to the ASC because you're, you're, you're not able to take the data and go, look, look how great we are because nobody understands it. And it's not measures for the most part that people can really show that there's been a great improvement in it. A lot of the measures get popped out. Yeah, the ASC rules, it seems, you know, from my impression, like they're eliminating some of the things people had to do. So tell us about some of those reporting measures. In summary, kind of what has happened, your take on it, and then what it means for an administrator. For the current year, for 2018 and 19, CMS has already removed three of the measures. If you're familiar with the program, you know, you have five measures that were submitted via G codes on your claims. Then there were web-based measures that you would go to QualityNet and input your numerator and denominator for your absolute values for your procedure count. Then they also have some claims-based reporting that the facility doesn't have to do anything for, like measure 12, which is seven-day post-colonoscopy hospital ER visit. So the facilities don't have to do anything for that data to come out. That, That comes directly from CMS's So you have those three types of measures, and CMS has already removed one of the G-codes for this year and next year. That's the pre-op antibiotics. They removed the safe surgery checklist, which was just a yes or no, and they removed uh, measure seven, which was your procedure volumes for all the CPT codes. They added two measures um, that are chart abstracted measures. So measure 13, which measures uh, percentage of patients with normal thermia or normal temperature after 15 minutes in the PACU. These patients have to have had an hour or more of general anesthesia. Um, And then number 14 is a a complications measure for cataracts. And then the the other new thing that had had come about in the past couple years was a outpatient ambulatory surgery center survey. So just like you have HCAP for the hospital patients, this is a, a post-ASC procedure satisfaction survey that's extremely complicated, very long, I think 35 questions, it's paper only or phone only, and that has been kept as optional for now. So that's big. That was something that facilities are going to have to pay thousands of dollars to implement, and it's going to be very difficult to meet the minimum number of surveys, which was 300, just because of the fact that it's, it's so long, complicated, and people are over-surveyed. So in the new rule, now going back to the new rule that just came out, they're actually removing eight more measures, which is huge. And so they'll start in this year with the 2018 data. So this is calendar year 2020 payment. So everything is always two years behind. In 2018, you will no longer need to collect the ASC-8 influenza vaccination coverage data. So that's one that you will not report in 2019. Then the following year, so for 2019 data that gets reported in 2020, they're removing the remaining four G-codes, 
the two colonoscopy measures, which you mentioned, ASC 9 and 10, the voluntary cataract measure 11, and they're still keeping the CAP survey optional. So that is just great news that they're listening. We need an electronic version for that. It needs to be shorter. So that really leaves only three measures, the claim space measure for the post-colon hospital visit, and then the two newest measures, 13 and 14. So that's huge. So for administrators, they need to know that, you know, for this current year, they're collecting data as normal, but starting next year, they just don't have to do the ASC-8, which is great because that one required reporting through a third website that required multiple steps to gain access through the CDC. So that's a big win. And then they also need to know that they no longer have to have those G-codes on their claims forms. That means nursing staff no longer have to address that in their discharge documentation. And so it's just, it's definitely going to be a lot easier. And that's a big win for administrators. It doesn't mean much for the patients. It's really going to be that all of the facilities are going to benefit from the changes, um, but, but patients really won't see a change. They'll still have unusual information on that website that won't really make sense. Them. Right. It's more administrative work. So for the three measures, can you tell me if it's an all or nothing, they have to report all three or they get no credit? And also, yes. how much penalty slash incentive is available? Is it a 2%? Yes. Yeah, so this one, the ASC program has remained the same in terms of it's an all or none. You either report all measures for the required year or you get the penalty. And it's always 2%. So unlike MIPS, it doesn't increase over time and there's no sliding scale. So it's an all or none. The measure 12 is something that's done by CMS, so you don't have to do anything to meet that measure. Really, the only two that you have to meet would be 13 and 14. If you're a GI endoscopy center, you do not do any general anesthesia and you don't do cataracts, then you will have to do nothing in 2019. Wow. That's big news because 12 is going to be reported by claims anyway. You get their data back as a facility and you want to look at it to make sure that it's correct, that the patients that Medicare said went to the hospital after colonoscopy, you want to make sure that you've checked those patients through your records. And if they did go to the hospital, if, it, if you don't already have them listed as a complication, then you could add them to your, to your tracking. But if it's not something related to the colonoscopy, so people are going to break their foot. They're going to have a car accident or they're going to have some other sort of event that can send them to the hospital. They just so happen to have had a colonoscopy within the past seven days. So it's going to be hard for anyone in the, the lay industry to understand that, yes, there's going to be people who go to the hospital after colonoscopy. Most of them are going to be unrelated to the colonoscopy. But that should be the same regardless of whether it's a colonoscopy or an orthopedic procedure or a cataract procedure. And, and actually, um, that brings me to the next point, which is that in 2020, CMS will add on two more similar measures that are going to look at the seven-day post-orthopedic hospital visit and post-urology hospital visit. And they're also going to, instead of looking at the past year, the measure is now going to be the past three years. They feel like the data is much more reliable if they look at three years versus just one. But they won't require any work on the part of the facilities, but you, you will want to look at your information and still maintain access to security net, Still keep a security administrator, still look at your data. 
So Karen, that's good news. Let me ask a question. If we set down those ASC requirements, kind of the lightening of that burden for so many people and then listening to that feedback and some of these changes, if we think about just ASC and practice administration, especially in the GI space where you have so much expertise, if you if we kind of parse that aside, what do you think are maybe just the top two or three areas that, you know, the nursing managers, the practice administrators that you know, work on these kinds of efforts, what are some things they can be doing to improve that maybe aren't these measures specifically? I like to start with encouraging them to collaborate with other like-minded individuals in the industry. Where I was before, you know, Oregon has many large GI practices and endoscopy centers throughout the state. So once a quarter, the administrators and the nurse managers for all of those centers would meet, and we called it the GI consortium. You know, we're competitors, but we were also colleagues. So we would meet and talk about what challenges are you facing in your market right now? Oh, are you having problems with X payer? Well, they've put these new requirements on you. Oh, well, we've already gotten that, and here's how we managed to meet that new requirement. Or, hey, nurse manager Bacon, how are you planning for your studies? So everybody has to do quality studies for Medicare certification, for if they're going for accreditation, like through AAAHC or Joint Commission. Um, you can you can share ideas, it's share information because you don't want to recreate the wheel. And practice administrators can benefit from joining uh, MGMA, which is a practice administrator uh, national society. Uh, They can benefit from going to or being part of whatever their specialty societies are as well. So I really think that they need to reach out to the resources that they have around them, uh, people that are doing the, the like things and see how they're managing to get through. And that's been a great opportunity, I think, that you get that collective intelligence and the collective experience and benefit from it. And then connecting to your state and national associations, those are also big, big resources. No, and I like that, that, you know, you're not just competitors, which is so common, but there's a lot of information to be shared, not just in the resources you mentioned, but across those relationships, especially on more community or regional levels. So Mm -hmm. that's a really great piece of advice. So do you have any specific or interesting stories you'd like to share with our audience and our listeners, you know, about, you know, anything in the GI space that you think might be of interest or an anecdote you'd like to share? Mm-hmm. Sure. So in the GI space, there is a quality data register, a national quality data registry called GI Quick. And endoscopists can subscribe to the data registry and they can submit their procedural data through either manual entry, which is kind of crazy, <laughs> or through the use of their endoscopy writer like Probation, uh, GMED, and others have export tools so that you can export your data up. And so everybody's procedural quality measures are submitted in this exact same manner in terms of the, the data. And you can actually compare your performance to your partners in your own facility, you can compare it to the national averages for the entire registry. This is something that our physicians participated in, and I was the data manager. So I was the person who was responsible for making sure all the information got uploaded, that we could run reports through it, and look at the data and compare the physicians compared to the national averages and such. So that was something that I was doing 
on a regular basis. And we were getting questions from one of the large internal medicine uh, primary care groups in the area that wanted to know, they, they, they were thinking that, and they anecdotally would say that your group is recalling patients for colonoscopies on average sooner than other GI groups. And we think that you're, you're using the colonoscopies too much, basically is what they were saying. And so I was able to take the GI quick data. So all that data is theirs. It's up in the cloud and it's up there. And I found a way through one of their um, reporting options to pull down the data that showed for every scenario, whether or not it was a, a screening colonoscopy or a surveillance, depending on what the actual results were, like if they had polyps, what kind of polyps, how many polyps, I was able to show how, how well our physicians adhered to the standard guidelines for surveillance and screening colonoscopies. The multi-society groups out there have determined that, you know, if you have no family history and you have no risk, you have a screening colonoscopy, say, every 10 years. If you have a normal colonoscopy, you don't come back for 10 years. But if you have a polyp, say it's a large polyp, then you need to come back in three years or five years, depending on the size. And so I was able to show them through a very you know, nice detailed presentation that we are following the standard recommendations and guidelines, say, you know, 85 to 95% of the time based on the particular scenario. And there are no set percentages that you should be meeting, but we were able to show that unless the patient had this, this, or this, certain circumstances that kind of made them not applicable to those guidelines, we were really doing exactly what the societies say and we are giving the best patient care and we are following up to, because the better you follow the guidelines, the more cancers you're going to prevent, which is the bottom line here. So it was very nice to, to see that they got it and they sat there and the executives from the group were, were listening to it and they asked great questions. And I was able to take that particular presentation and take it to many different other groups and, and events where it really made people understand that, yes, this data that we're paying for, which is hard to meet all the requirements sometimes, but you really can do something with it. And you can take that data and you can use that in your board packet. You can use that when you go to negotiate with your insurance contracts. You can use that in your quality program for your studies for CMS certification or for your accreditation. I really liked that particular study and being able to pull that data down and really turn that into something that it made a lot of sense. And it wasn't just some esoteric uh, exercise. It really showed how good the physicians were. And I liked that. No, I think that's great. And identifying really that, you know, that collecting this stuff isn't about checking the box or, you know, just kind of it, it happening in this benign fashion or to save a percentage in some sort of nebulous, but that it actually has utility, that it has value it is super important. And I think sometimes we, we lose sight of it. We just have all these silos of information. So Karen, I really appreciate you sharing a lot of your expertise with us today, especially in GI. I know you described at the beginning of our conversation kind of the path that led you there, but you're really a wealth of knowledge in this specialty space. And so hearing more about what you did and were able to accomplish and some of those details and how it can be of benefit to other administrators, I, I know will be helpful to our listeners today. Well, thank you. I'm really happy to be able to share that. I hope people can tell I'm passionate about it. 
and it's, it is something that I feel very strongly about and love to help other people take what they've been doing, checking the boxes. You know, they're just checking the boxes sometimes and being able to help them see that, you know, yes, you're doing it, but this is, this is what you can do with it on the other side. And I like that part. No, and it, it definitely, you know, you can hear it in your voice. To wind it down, for any of our listeners that want to get a hold of you, no more, you know, pick your brain or work with you. What is the best way to reach you or where can they find you online? I'm on LinkedIn currently. Well, I am on Twitter. It's at KL Shanna. Excellent. Thanks again for joining us today, Karen. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you, Karen, for helping to lighten the administrative burden. And thank you for listening to the Hit Like a Girl podcast. If you want to know more about us or Karen, check out our website at hitlikeagirlpod.com. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you simply tell a friend about this podcast, that would help us out too. You can also connect with us on Twitter or Instagram at the handle hitlikeagirlpod. Thanks again. See you next time.